Morning Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Butty, Washington. Today is Thursday, September 22nd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. U.S. President Joe Biden condemns Russia's invasion of Ukraine and calls for world support of Ukraine. Ukraine has the same rights that belong to every sovereign nation. We will stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We will stand in solidarity against Russia's aggression. Period. Meanwhile, President Biden expresses support for expanding the United Nations Security Council. We'll get reaction. We'll have analysis of this week's appointment of a new prime minister in Senegal. South African clothing retailers reduce their reliance on Chinese imports. Kenyan President William Ruto speaks on the effects of climate change on his country. Ghana's President Nana Akufuado raises the alarm about the threat of terrorism in Africa's Sahel region. The terrorist pressure has provided a pretext for the unhappy reappearance of military rule in three of the 15-member ECOWAS community. And the Church of England prohibits Bishop Tutu's daughter from presiding over a funeral. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. President Joe Biden has condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and called for world support for the country. Speaking Wednesday at the United Nations General Assembly in New York, President Biden said the war was an attempt by a prominent member of the United Nations Security Council to erase Ukraine, another sovereign country, from the map. Biden spoke Wednesday, the same day that Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered the partial mobilization of reservists and threatened the use of nuclear weapons. In the last year, our world has experienced great upheaval. A growing crisis in food insecurity, record heat, floods and droughts, COVID-19, inflation, and a brutal, needless war. A war chosen by one man, to be very blunt. Let us speak plainly. A permanent member of the United Nations Security Council invaded its neighbor, attempted to erase a sovereign state from the map. Russia has shamelessly violated the core tenets of the United Nations Charter. No more important than the clear prohibition against countries taking the territory of their neighbor by force. Again, just today, President Putin has made overt nuclear threats against Europe and a reckless disregard for the responsibilities of the non-proliferation regime. Now, Russia's calling, calling up more soldiers to join the fight, and the Kremlin is organizing a sham referenda to try to annex parts of Ukraine, an extremely <clears throat> significant violation of the UN Charter. This world should see these outrageous acts for what they are. This war is about extinguishing Ukraine's right to exist as a state, plain and simple, and Ukraine's right to exist as a people. Whoever you are, wherever you live, whatever you believe, that should not, that should make your blood run cold. The United States is also working closely with our allies and partners to impose costs on Russia 
to deter attacks against NATO territory, to hold Russia accountable for the atrocities and war crimes. Because if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for, everything. Like you, the United States wants this war to end on just terms, on terms we all signed up for, that you cannot seize a nation's territory by force. The only country standing in the way of that is Russia. So we, each of us in this body, who's determined to uphold the principles and beliefs we pledge to defend as members of the United Nations, must be clear, firm, and unwavering in our resolve. Ukraine has the same rights that belong to every sovereign nation. We will stand in solidarity with Ukraine. We will stand in solidarity against Russia's aggression. Period. That was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking Wednesday at the 77th United Nations General Assembly in New York. A former U.N. Secretary General for Political Affairs says the United States has never, in principle, opposed the expansion of the U.N. Security Council to grant permanent and non-permanent membership to Africa, Latin America, or Southeast Asia. But Ambassador James Dolan says the problem has been the requirement that the new permanent members should not have veto powers. In his speech to the 77th U.N. General Assembly on Wednesday, U.S. President Joe Biden expressed his support for expanding the Security Council by granting permanencies to Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. Ambassador Jonas tells me that the acceptable way to reform the Security Council would be to give the new members the same rights and responsibilities that the current members have. The United States in particular, have never opposed expansion of the Security Council and also permanent seats. But then the proposal was made by the 15 permanent members that granting permanent seats to Africans, Asians, or Latin Americans would require that they not use their seats to veto. And there are some members who were prepared to accept that condition. But my argument has always been, based on my knowledge of UN law, that there is no reference in the Charter to the word veto. All the Charter says is that passing a binding resolution of the Security Council would require the concurrence of all permanent members, which means it is the permanency that requires concurrence. So just giving permanency now, according to the proposals which have been made, would not mean the extra ones who use their vote to block. And this has not been accepted by the African states. But I know there were other members who were prepared to accept it. So there's no contradictions. Yeah, the U.S. have never, in principle, opposed expansion of the Security Council member states. Ambassador Jonas, everyone is talking about reforming the Security Council. What do you think is the best way to go? 
do you think abolishing the veto is the best way to go and introducing a majority rule in the Security Council, just like the General Assembly? Well, in practical terms, it is going to be very difficult for some permanent members to accept just plain majority rule in the Security Council. For example, it is doubtful that the United States Senate will ratify any change which removes quote-unquote what we call veto from the Charter by the United States. I doubt they would do it. So what one can accept is that if you are going to grant permanent seats to, say, African states, then those permanent seats should have all the rights and the responsibilities of the current five permanent states. That would be the fairest way to do. But I think the fear is that if you have these new permanent seats in five or six, then it will complicate proceedings in the Security Council and make it difficult to reach decisions. This is the argument which has been made. But these things are not explained usually in discussion. But these are the core problems facing expansion of the permanent seats in the Security Council. Ambassador Jonas, thank you again. We do appreciate your knowledge about the institution of the United Nations. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Ambassador James Jonah is the former U.N. Undersecretary General for Political Affairs. He was speaking with us from New York. Kenyan President William Ruto says Kenya and other African countries most affected by climate change need financial and technical support to cushion climate impact on the continent. He spoke Wednesday to the 77th U.N. General Assembly in New York. Many countries now bear witness to the unsettling phenomena of rivers, canals, and water reservoirs that are drying up on account of droughts and heat waves occasioned by climate change. Kenya is no exception. The northern arid and semi-arid rangelands of our country have been gravely impacted by drought, whose severity has not been seen or experienced in 40 years. 3.1 million residents of these assholes are now severely food insecure on account of scarce rainfall over three consecutive seasons, leading to poor crop and pasture. This unprecedented confluence of intensely adverse events has exacerbated water scarcity and starvation, worsened by rising food prices, thus complicating Kenya's roadmap towards delivering good quality of life to our citizens and hindering the progress to achieving SDG number six and SDG number two. Severe drought has affected not only the Horn of Africa and the Sahel regions, but continues to devastate many others, including Asia, Europe, and the Americas. If for no other reason, the fact that we all are in this together must strengthen the case for concerted efforts across continents. With this in mind, I call on member states 
and all relevant stakeholders to demonstrate strong political will and showcase effective cooperation by supporting the most affected countries financially, as well as through sharing land restoration and climate change adaptation technologies. It is through collaboration to expand inclusion that we can attain a new paradigm in multilateralism. That was Kenyan President William Ruto speaking Wednesday to the 77th UN General Assembly in New York. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Butte in Washington. Today is Thursday, September 22nd. Ghanaian President Nana Ado Dankwa Akufuado says the threat of terrorism in Africa's Sahel region is a global problem that deserves a global solution. President Akufuado, the immediate former chair of the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, made his comments Wednesday while addressing the ongoing 77th UN General Assembly in New York. He said the threat of terrorism has provided a pretext for what he calls the unhappy reappearance of military rule in three of the 15 ECOWAS member countries. But President Akufuado says ECOWAS is determined to reverse such trends and keep the region democratic. The terrorist pressure has provided a pretext for the unhappy reappearance of military rule in three of the 15 member ECOWAS community, two of whom have borne the brunt of the terrorist outrages in the region, Mali and Burkina Faso. It is a development we're determined to reverse so that the ECOWAS space remains a democratic one. All of us in the region are being forced to spend huge amounts of money on security. This is money we should be spending on educating and giving skills to our young people, on building much-needed roads, bridges, hospitals, and other such infrastructure which we are spending to fight terrorists or to keep them out from destabilizing our countries. This is a global problem deserving the attention of the world community for a global solution. Mr. President, I'm contributing to this debate on a date that has special significance for us in Ghana. 21st September is the date we mark the birth of our first president, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah. He would have been 113 years old today. And it is worth recalling on this day the driving force of his political career, which was to contribute to the birth of a united Africa, that is the United States of Africa. We recognize today more than ever before the importance of the strength and unity of Africa, and we are working to shed that image of a helpless, hapless continent. There is a renewed commitment towards an inclusive and sustainable industrialization and economic integration. And the intensity of the challenges we face today is only matched like never before by the immensity of the opportunity before us. We, the current leaders of Africa, should be determined not to waste the crisis that confronts us. Incidentally, 
2022 is billed as Africa's year to take action on food and nutrition development goals. We see the current geopolitical crisis as an opportunity to rely less on food imports from outside the continent and use better our 60% share of global, of global share of arable lands to increase food productions. We have seen the devastating impact of relying on Russia and Ukraine for 70% of our wheat consumption. We have enough land, enough water, enough gas, and enough manpower to produce enough fertilizer, food, and energy for ourselves and for others. That was Ghanaian President Nana Ado Dankwa Akufado speaking yesterday at the ongoing 77th UN General Assembly in New York. Two years after abolishing the post of Prime Minister, Senegalese President Macky Sall reinstated the position this month by appointing Amadou Ba. Political experts speculate that this may be a nod that President Saad is preparing Ba to run for president in 2024. Omar Ba, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Cornell University, spoke to Ricky Stryak about the implications of the appointment. The fact that Maki had decided to remove Prime Minister position was quite shocking to, to many people because it just it did not make any sense. Although in the past there's been instances where the Prime Minister position had been removed, Senghor had done it, Juf had done it at some point, but for the past more than 20 or 30 years, it's been a main feature of Senegalese administration and also because the, the number of ministers tend to be so high that you need one person to actually help implement and coordinate the work. The reasoning that Mackey had given for removing the position was not convincing. He said basically we want to streamline the work of the government and having this position makes everything slow, so we'll just remove it, which did really did not make any sense. So what was his sense for, for reinstating the position? Well, because he realized that, you know, he needed this position. There's, there's a reason why there is a, uh, the prime minister position, because although it is up to the president who constitutionally is the one who defines what the policy is and what the government should do, but it is up to the prime minister to implement that. And it is the prime minister who, for instance, when the National Assembly has an inquiry or wants to um, look into what the government is doing, the National Assembly can call in the prime minister to ask them questions and do a vote of confidence. They cannot call on Mackie Sall to come before the National Assembly to answer questions, but they can do it for the Prime Minister. So that position was really important. Can you tell me a little bit about who he did appoint as the Prime Minister and what that, you know, what his policies are? He appointed Amadouba. Amadouba was a civil servant in Senegalese administration. He is, um, professionally, he is an inspector at the Zimposet domain, which is um, a central piece in Senegalese uh, administration. They are the ones who deal with the taxation and, uh, and uh, the land. Um, so he, at some point, was the director which, interestingly enough, um, Sonko also was uh, was a civil servant in the imposed domain. 
Um, so it just shows how central imprisonment is in Senegal's administration. There was uh, quite a bit of competition uh, between him, Amadouba, and uh, Mimi Toure when it comes to their ranking and positions. Two potential persons who could actually lead the party if Mackey were to step down would be maybe one of them or them too. That was Umar Ba, Assistant Professor of International Relations at Cornell University. He was speaking to Ricky Stryak from Ithaca, New York. Some of South Africa's largest clothing retailers are reducing their reliance on China in favor of locally sourced materials. It's part of a wider trend to move away from Chinese imports to reinvigorate local textile manufacturing. But retailers wonder if the domestic industry can meet new demands. Linda Giftage reports from Johannesburg. The South African flag is increasingly decorating labels on garments at major retail chains across the country. It's an effort to bolster the country's clothing and textile sector. More than half of the textiles sold by South African retailers are imported from abroad, according to the government, and nearly 60% of those imports come from China. Retailers signing on to the government's master plan to support local businesses say there are more benefits than just job creation. Hazel Pillay is the general manager for retailer pick-and-pay clothing. Being able to have the product made locally means that you can actually respond to what the customer needs more efficiently, which is really what every retailer wants to move towards, more fast response. Pick-and-pay clothing is among the retailers such as Woolworths, Mr. Price and Trueworths increasing its supply of locally sourced products from 28% in 2019 to 40% today. The shift is now gaining momentum on the heels of global trade disruptions due to the coronavirus pandemic and record unemployment. Ketakani Moreku is a young designer recruited to aid in the effort. It gave me a lot of attention and gave me a lot of publicity. In the times that we live in, there's a very high rate of unemployment. I think that it will have a a very large impact. It will create more jobs uh, for all generations. Moreku estimates his collaboration with Pick and Pay in 2020 created about 1,000 jobs from manufacturing to digital marketing. That's what the South African government wants to see, with a target of 121,000 new textile jobs by 2030. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Johannesburg. The daughter-in-law of the late South African Anglican Archbishop Desmond Tutu says the Church of England is homophobic for not allowing her wife, who is a priest, to preside over the funeral of a family friend. Marceline Tutu Van Four, who is married to Bishop Tutu's daughter, Umpo Andrea Tutu Van Four, says the church told them it accepts priests in same-sex relationships, but not if they are married. Vicky Stark reports from Cape Town, South Africa, on how the issue has split the church. Speaking from the Netherlands, where the couple lives, Marceline Tutu van Firth said she was upset by what she called the church's blatant discrimination against Bishop Tutu's daughter, Paul. She fell in love with me and then she had the courage to marry me. And then she can't be the person she is as a priest. And that's, I don't understand that. Van Firth says the couple visited Mpo's godfather, Martin Kenyon, in April for the last time. And he specifically asked Mpo to preside over his funeral. Kenyon died in London last week at age 92. 
However, Van Firth says the Church of England is not allowing Mpoh to fulfill Kenyon's request. She had to hand in her license. And now this is uh, an, a second time, at least that I'm aware of, of course, small things also happen, but that she can't do something out of love for her godfather and for the family uh, just because of a same-sex marriage. And yeah, that's something that upsets me. Van Firth says she felt compelled to speak up on the issue. Tutu family has always been very welcoming to me. And Mpo is very polite. Mpo is always very, we'll see the next step. And now, I thought, now, now I'm going to make action. Vicky Stark for VOA News, Cape Town, South Africa. And that's it for this Thursday, September 22nd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barty in Washington saying, have a great day and be safe whatever you do. Mm-hmm.